You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 294. The secret of becoming a good screenwriter is to write, write, and keep on writing. Ken McLeod. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft, it's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Enjoy today's episode with guest host, Jason Buff. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Pilar Alessandra about screenwriting. I just read her book, The Coffee Break Screenwriter, and I mean, it's it's an amazing book. It's got all kinds of activities you can do to kind of jumpstart your creativity and start really figuring out what your screenplay is about and what the characters are, are you know, what their motivations are, what they want in the story. I really enjoyed it, and it's got a lot of stuff that I haven't seen in other screen. You know, there's a million screenwriting books, and I try to read as many as I can, and this one had a lot of great new stuff in it, so I highly recommend it. Here's my interview with the amazing Pilar Alessandra. Kind of like a typical work week for you, like what, what, I mean, are you, do you have like a pile of screenplays that you are going through? Are you talking with screenwriters on the phone? What, what's kind of your world like there? My world is, is a little bit busy. I wouldn't recommend it to everybody uh, unless you're, you want to commit to workaholism. Um, <laughs> I consult on two scripts a day and I run... Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I run four different private writers groups. This is uh, these are things I actually don't advertise. They're um, made up of writers that I've picked out of um, clients that I think that that are really at a certain level with their writing and are also good in a, good in a room. Um, so I run those private writing groups four times a week, and then I also have. Um, uh, six-week classes that I teach, currently teaching one on Saturdays, 12.30 to 3.30, and that's those tend to be first draft classes. And then I also do rewrite weekends and uh, the occasional specialty class. I'm very, very excited because I'm also teaching a TV class about every two months now, and it's usually a one-day intensive. And then when I'm not doing that, um, I'm really lucky. I get to travel and, uh, and teach in other countries and recently just got back from South Africa, which was amazing. I got to uh, wow. spend five days with uh, an animation company called Triggerfish and um, 35 writers from all over Africa. So that was really cool. So, Is that ever intimidating to you? I mean, do you, you kind of pinch yourself and say, you know, wow? Yeah. <laughs> like every time I'm invited somewhere, I just think that they've just sent the email to the wrong person. 
you know. Imposter and, syndrome. Yeah, we kind of go through that for a little bit. Like, well, you know this, and you know, and they're like, no, no, you. So, uh, so yeah, I'm very, very lucky, and it's really cool. Um, so, so yeah, I work really hard, but it's a, it's a great job. So working with creative people, do you, is there something that they have in common that they're looking for that they need in terms of, they have a certain way of thinking, they have a certain way of wanting to create and want to write, but they just need somebody to come in and organize their thought or something like that? I think, I think everybody wants to know, are they expressing their intention? Um, they had this idea in their head or they had this person in their mind or they had this amazing scene. Is it there? I think one of the reasons I called this on the page, my, my business, was because it really all came down to, was it there? Was it on the page? It can, it can live in your mind. Um, you can hope a director brings it out or an actor, but if it's not on the page, then it, it's just not working. So that's what everybody wants to know. Are, am I seeing it? Is it there? Will audiences see it? And mm. uh, if it's not there, then we talk about what's the best way to express that so that they can get their intention out. One of the things that I've had to learn over the years was, okay, where is my talent? What am I good at? What can I, you know, I can see when I write, I kind of see scenes, I see it. And it's almost a way of like taking dictation, putting it on the page and saying, okay, I've got a movie. Now, how do I take that movie and then structure it right and put it right so that what I'm actually seeing is what I'm conveying to people, you know? Right. And then there's the tricky part because if what you're seeing is sort of a list of things, I see this, mm -hmm. I see that, I see the other thing, that can get monotonous and it can feel cuttable. Um, but if you phrase it in a way, you know, I see it and it looks like this thing. You know, if you're using mm -hmm. a simile that works for you or a metaphor, I mean, people don't don't appreciate, I think, how 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 much screenwriters are writers. They have to find the right phrase in order to convey visually what's in their head because they're uh, a list of things doesn't work it has to be a sometimes just a concise sentence so mm -hmm. um so word choice is is everything page work it seems like a lot of you can take a lot of liberties with certain things when it comes to kind of making your vision come to life and i was wondering what you thought about that in terms of just do you find that there's a lot of as long as they're getting their vision through yeah, that they can I, kind of play yeah. with that Yes, if it's readable, it's working. Okay. If it doesn't make the reader stop to notice the format or look at the page number, it's working. Um, people are so hung up on, you know, is there, am I doing the correct format? But I really believe over the years it has loosened up because at the stage that you're submitting your script, it's for people to grasp onto the story and characters and then start pushing it upwards. So if that's not coming through... Um, if they're not completely involved, it's not going to go anywhere. They're not going to pass on it because you did some kind of incorrect formatting. They're going <laughs> to pass if they're bored. So, um, yeah, even – ooh, that's my, my call waiting. I'm sorry. We're on a phone okay. line. Um, Everybody yeah. will just assume you use some bad language there. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be really funny if it just kept oh, – Okay, okay. let's that's try to – let's, you know – Keep it on the table here. Don't <laughs> even, work blue. <laughs> um, even uh, David Trottier, um, he wrote the Screenwriter's Bible, and he's, he's known lovingly as Dr. Format. You know, mm -hmm. he's, he's over the years said as much, you know, if it's working on the page, 
if it's, you know, the things, the objects you want noticed are being noticed and the visuals are coming through and the dialogue is clear and you're working down the page with a, with a certain pace, mm-hmm. it's working. One of the biggest things that I remember was when I was in my younger years, I read, read you know, Shane Black's screenplay for Lethal Weapon, which is kind of like what everybody has to read when they're first starting out. And it just blew me away, like, you know, even noting parts of it where it was like, you know, that he was in the kind of house that I would buy if I sold this screenplay and like all these right. little things that he put in just to kind of keep people interested. And, and it just seems like in the good screenplays that I've read, it's all about just keeping people's attention, you know, building that tension, making sure that every every scene has a reason to be there and everything is pulling you in and just affecting you versus some of the more amateurist things that, that I used to read, which was you would just have people talking and dialogue that kind of went nowhere and, and people would be creating a world, but they wouldn't necessarily be creating a, a story. No, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and, uh, you know, fortunately, I think writers have, there's so much more out there now for them as far as resources go that they know now uh, that di- you know just hanging it on dialogue is not the way to go. Um, they're, the, the scripts that I've read over the years have gotten better and better and better. Um, and the bad news is that means your competition is getting is also getting better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now when people sort of when it's not screwing, when, when people, so now when it's not working page wise, it's not so much because people are um, hanging it on amateur. Um, wait, sorry, <laughs> I'm getting a little tongue tied. <laughs> so it's not okay. that people are getting amateur in their writing, it's that um, they sometimes they're just actually too full of bells and whistles now. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now it's like, I'm not going to tell you the story. I'm going to go to a really cool flash forward. Now I'm going to go back in time. And now (laughs) I'm going to go from somebody else's point of view. Whoop! I switched genres. I'm so clever. And so when that starts happening, that's sometimes what I see is screwing things up. Not because you shouldn't be inventive, because you should, but because they're throwing all the cool spaghetti against the wall. And uh, and it it just feels like spaghetti against the wall. Kind of the Michael Bay version of a screenplay. That <laughs> sounds like. I think what Michael Bay does, you know, he commits to. Um, I think it's when people <laughs> don't know what they want. Like if they if you know if you're writing a Michael Bay movie, fine, commit to it. But if you're writing a Michael Bay movie, but it's half that and it's half Tarantino, you know. And it's also a, a super indie at the same time. It's like, okay, make up your mind. It's that kind of spaghetti mess that, that could be a yeah. problem. Yeah, well, I remember when, when I was in film school, Tarantino was – Tarantino had really just come out when uh, I think Pulp Fiction was out and Reservoir Dogs came out I think when I was uh, a sophomore. And it was funny because you know I was taking a screenwriting class and every single person in that class started writing Quentin Tarantino screenplays. You know, And they had the, the dialogue between two guys that was kind of like – didn't really have anything to do with anything and there was something kind of – you know, in the background that you, you were supposed to, they just kind of missed the point of that and just went for the, the funny dialogue versus it's funny dialogue because you know something bad is going to happen. It builds that tension, you know, the kind of Hitchcock way of showing you something bad is going to happen and then having people do stuff, you know, they would just forget about that part. Yeah, you've totally just nailed why that scene works, which is 
it gets our defenses down. You think, wow, these are just two guys who are just talking about just guy fun stuff. And then when you see the blow of the scene, which is, you know, they're on their way to kill a room full of people, um, that is what that scene is about. That's why it has to be there. And you're right. After that, people wrote a million copies, and I read them all because I was reading <laughs> videos at the time, and they didn't have any reason for being there. They were just clever. And, uh, and you know, cleverness without context, without it connecting to anything, mm. um, you know, it's a, a, a cute scene, but it, it, it feels, it, it kind of wrecks the screenplay. It feels out of place. Now, I want to I step back a little bit and talk about your time at Amblin and working with Amblin and um, DreamWorks and that, that period. And so if we can just go back in time a little bit. That's a um, long way back in time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I, I can't let it go because I'm a huge Spielberg and Zemeckis fan. You know, I, I first took on the job because it was a really cool job. I was like, oh, well, this will be great. You know, I can I can work from home and I can do the other things I was interested in and hang out with my friends. But my work workaholism, you know, soon <laughs> you know, soon got in my way where um, I was reading tons of scripts for them. Um when I first started, it was the heyday of Amblin. Um, Jurassic Park had just hit um, Schindler's wow. List. And, you know, everybody was feeling really good about the content. And it was a real or sort of happy-go-lucky place, if I remember right. I was in my, in my 20s, you know, <laughs> and you could show up. And on Friday, people were, you know, having a beer. And, you know, it felt like... Even high fives. Place. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you'd go in every day and the place... Um, looked a lot like the Flintstone ca- compound to me, you know, <laughs> it, it had these cute little hutches and yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. I, um, I think I remember seeing that in like a Barbara Walters special or something. Cause he yeah, was at Amp you know, and they had all the Jurassic park stuff around and dinosaurs. Yes. And it was, it was such a cool place to be working in, in, oh, in your twenties. You know, I was just like, wow, this is, this is awesome. And I was definitely learning on the job. Um, you know, I I made some screw ups, but I also had, you know, a couple creative executives who really thought I knew story and, um, you know, <laughs> would would you know give me some of their more trusted work. And over there, once you uh, were trusted and were working your your butt off, you know, you'd also start doing notes on existing projects. Um, so that was interesting for me to, as a reader, what you're usually doing is going yes or no. As mm-hmm. somebody's doing notes, you're saying, well, of course, because it's a project, and this is what you can do about it. This is how you can make it better, which is very much the kind of work that I do now. Um, and uh, when it became DreamWorks, um, you know, I, I got to be senior story analyst, one of, the, one of a couple of senior story analysts, which really just meant work harder. And... Um, and then when Bob Zemeckis did have a deal with DreamWorks and he was on the lot for a while there, I was sort of reading, I was sort of a go-between between both companies. Um, it was interesting, just tons and tons and tons of content that was coming my way. And I was really getting, I think, pretty good at homing in on what made a script exciting and and where it, it might not work 
for the executives mm-hmm. I was working for. Um, and that was what led me to create a bunch of writing tools um, that I used in classes and became the, the root of my book. Um, right. So it, it was a, a great learning experience. Where were most of the screenplays coming from? Were they just people that were submitting screenplays? or were they, No, it, where? Was all the, it was all the big agencies of the time. Uh, okay. you know, CAA, ICM, William Morris, um, uh, APA, um, just just the you know the big ones, which mm-hmm. I can't always say in in my opinion from from reading so many scripts over the years is necessarily always a good thing because since you know since that work and now that I've been on my own for so many years and I've read so many writers who aren't represented or who are represented by smaller agencies, I have to say I think sometimes the studios are missing out. Because there are there's some wonderful work out there that that isn't repped by a big shiny agency, and uh, and and you know it that's where a lot of unique voices are. Um, so I you know I've read some I would say over the years even better stuff than I read back then. Do you think it's important for writers to try to get an agent to so that they can get into that world? Yeah, unfortunately, it still is because you still need somebody who can champion wor- your work and has the connections uh, that can that can reach out for you. Um, so yes, you you still want to try very very hard to get uh, an agent or these days a manager because a manager manages your entire career and may understand that you have more than just one sellable project that maybe you have something that would be good as a writing sample uh, to get you work or to staff you up, or maybe you have an incredible play that needs to get, get out there or a web series. So that's what a manager does is tries to get you out on all kinds of levels. An agent then turns around and tries to sell a script. Okay. Now, when you were reading these screenplays, would you, was there any, is there any sort of moment when you would kind of know that it wasn't a good screenplay? I mean, is there a typical um, pattern that you would see in terms of, you know, a screenplay arrives, you start reading it, and then you start seeing maybe like red flags? Well, you know, um, there's something that happens in the second act, and it happened then and it happens now, where I'll read something, it has a really strong first act, it has a great concept, but I kind of call it spinning its wheels. In the second act, it doesn't really know what to do with that concept, and it starts playing one trick over and over again. And you start going, okay, I've been here before can we get can we get out of here you know can we get out of this mud and know that it's just spinning its wheels and um uh if it just sort of fails to ever sort of cleverly get out of there um then usually that's that's that is a a problem that i see sometimes the the problem is actually the third act where everything has been sort of interesting and fun and games and you know it's trucking along in the second act but then there's no clever there there isn't a, a clever resolution there's just sort of a cheating resolution you know oh they get the treasure they get the girl they live happily ever after but there wasn't an interesting way of getting that treasure or the girl or living happily ever after and the writer's just hoping that the audience will be okay with that and i don't think audiences like to be cheated out of a third act so mm. um, so that could be a problem as well. It seems like a lot of times screenwriters will keep setting up things and setting up things and making things like, oh, well, I'm going to throw something in that's going to make you – it'll 
pull you into the story and make you more interested, but it's not paid off at the end. There's nothing that it really leads to. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You're absolutely right. I think too, that's sort of the secret to coming up with a clever ending is mining whatever you created in the first half. And so writers get stuck because they think that they have to come up with something completely out of thin air. And it's like, no, just look, look behind you. What did you invent along the way? The smallest thing could be an incredible payoff. And I think when we see thrillers that work for us or even romantic comedies that work for us, they're often pulling from something that we didn't expect, but it was there. It was there. It was right in front of our nose. And then they used that to their advantage in, in, in the resolution. And, uh, and that's what I teach in class. And I find that, you know, I'm constantly surprised when somebody does do it well in a great script. I'm like, oh, that was a great payoff. And mm-hmm. in, when I was working for the studios, that would get passed upwards. And now that I'm not, it's, uh, it, it, I do see those scripts move on to success. Now, one of the things that <laughs> – full disclosure is that you know, I'm, I'm, I've been working on a screenplay for the last two months, and I got your book in order to, to talk to you about it. You know, And yeah. I actually – once I started reading it, it kind of blew me away because it's exactly the kind of thing that I need because I'm a very disorganized, all-over-the-place kind of person. And I absolutely love the concept of just being able to have somebody guide you through and say, okay, let's focus on what's the log line, what's the idea, what's this. And what, you know, talking about the third act, one of the things that completely made the screenplay um, about 100 times better was the concept of working backwards from the third act. And it was just like, it was so great. Yeah. In TV writing and, you know, over the years, my work has changed from just screen, just dealing with screenwriters. I would say half and half of it is it's TV. Mm-hmm. And that particular exercise works really well for TV writers, too, because if you're pl- plotting out TV, your act breaks are everything. And when you're figuring out your TV show, you need to think about act break backwards. So let's say you have five acts. If you ask, what is it? you know, what's my act break going to be? And then do that kind of work of, well, how did I get there? That will help you figure out how to tell your story. So, um, so I'm very glad that worked for you because, um, I, I, I do think that it, it is something that can help people in outlining, especially if they're not outliners. How long do you think people should be outlining before they actually jump in? I mean, one of one of the things that I have found for myself is I'll go through and I'll try to get everything together, but I'll still have a lot of scenes that I haven't worked out. And then once I start writing, it almost becomes like this improvisation, you know, and I want to make sure that I have the tracks laid out and I can kind of stay there. But I, I, I kind of go into these wild ideas. All of a sudden, I'll invent a character over here and I'll have this happen over there. And it's like, oh, wait a second, I got to get back. You know, I'm, I'm going off a little bit. But it's also good, I think, to have that first draft out there so you can just start generating all those ideas, you know? I think what you said is perfect. I, I am not a <laughs> well, big believer in, in 25-page outlines. I think all you've done then is spend time on a 25-page outline where you could have been writing your screenplay. Um, so in classes and in the book, it's very much what you just said. I provide a, a, a blueprint so that you can see big picture with your, with your screenplay or with your 
TV uh, pilot. And then as you're writing, I, I think you're right. Sometimes the characters go a place you didn't expect. Now, if they're starting to go in a place that could completely modify that outline and you like it, go back into the blueprint, adjust it a little bit so that you can see what that butterfly effect is going to be. And then, okay, you've got a, a new blueprint to work with and go from there. But, it, but your outline should be something that is changeable because I agree, your writing is going to change that story as you go. You sometimes can never really know until you're actually writing it. Do you find that people, when they're writing their first draft, tend to say, oh, wait, 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 I had an idea, and they want to go back and start changing things? The going backwards thing can be a problem. Mm. It's not so much that they usually go back and say, oh, I had an idea. It's usually that they want to make whatever they did just perfect before they move on. And what ends up happening are those perfect first acts that we talked about and those, God, I'm so tired, third acts. Um, uh, so I, 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 if you, if you have an idea and you're like, oh, I want to change the first act because the idea now is, is the better one to help you move forward, by all means do it. Just don't spend a lot of time rewriting all the stuff around it. Just change that idea so that you can see now how it's going to sort of re-trigger the second act. That's the mistake that I made for a very, I, I ended up rewriting a screenplay for almost a year and a half that I, I would go in and I would watch a movie and I'd be like, oh, I really like the tension in this scene. I kind of like what's going on here. And I would I'd be like, maybe I can use that. And I would go back and like start changing the screenplay around a little bit. And it just became uh, this gigantic mess. And so now that I, I'm, when I write now, it's more, pay a lot more attention to the outlining process and making sure that I don't get into it and say, oh, I want to change things, you know, halfway through. Right. you got to get to the end. In my classes, it's all about, in the first draft class, it's all about you got to move forward and just finish this. We can go back and make it pretty later. We can go back and nuance it later. But it doesn't matter if you're the most beautiful writer in the world if you never have anything done. Now, in your classes, do you find that there are certain different approaches to screenwriting? Oh, absolutely. In terms of I mean, personalities? Okay. Yeah, I would say if I've got 30 students, there's 30 different ways in. Um, <laughs> and there should be. There should right. be. You know, everybody's got to have their own style and their own stamp. Um, so that's why, again, it's important to loosely outline and not got, get hung up on saying to people um, certain plot points have to be at certain pages, um, I believe, because they don't have to be. Uh, your story should be unique in its telling, not only in its subject matter. So um, we can talk about patterns that have been in successful movies and TV shows, but then once you know that, uh, once you feel confident in your outline, you should just go and see what happens. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a million ways to tell the story, fortunately, and that's what keeps, keeps us watching movies and TV because we just never know what the next approach is going to be. Do you find that some people are more into the structure side of it and then other people are just more more like me, <laughs> that are just like more creative and not really like... I mean, I, I remember I had a conversation with uh, Corey Mandel not ah, too long ago. the old intuitive versus conceptual. Yeah, right? yeah, that's what I was talking about. You know? Yeah, I love, that, I love that approach that he has. And, you know, you can... You can say the dummy version of it, which I'll say, which would be like the inside <laughs> out or outside in, you know? And 
there are the conceptual people. Um, those are the outside-in people, the people who see big picture and see the outline and then uh, have a hard time sometimes um, finding the scenes and they have to work at the dialogue and they have to really work at their craft. Um, and then there are the people who are, as he calls it, the intuitive people. I call it the inside-out people who... <laughs> <laughs> I, Corey's way smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> uh, the people who love their dialogue, know their scenes, but have a hard time seeing the big picture and sometimes can get lost in the minutia. Mm-hmm. And in in my classes, I like to think that we do both at one time. Um, I'll start everybody big picture, uh, but as we are fleshing out the big picture, the craft issues are coming in and we're dealing with them as we go so that you're sort of having to flip between both minds uh, and and you're not abandoning one over the other um, but you really do have to get strong at both and and I think that's why the experienced writers over time have done that it's it, I always think of it like um, you know somebody who's a right-handed person having to sit there and try to write with their left hand for you know a couple of days to start strengthening that up it doesn't have to be as difficult as that it could be can your right hand do two things at one time? Can you multitask, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, anybody who has um, texted somebody while they're writing an email and posting Facebook, you're doing three things at one time. Well, you can probably look big picture at your script and write from within uh, without having to completely go to your left hand. You know what I mean? It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be as foreign as that. Now, can we talk a little bit? I know you talk a lot about log lines, and I'm I'm sure that you're probably a little tired of it, but do you mind explaining the importance of having a long li- log line and how that guides you as a writer? No screenwriting teacher is ever tired of talking about log lines. <laughs> God, we love our log lines. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, I think the reason that that everybody's so hung up on them is they serve a a purpose for the writer and they serve a a purpose for the listener. For the writer, knowing what your hook is and being able to articulate that in one line means that you always have a thesis statement you can go back to whenever you're lost in your writing process. So you can go, oh my God, where am I? Look at your log line and say, oh, that's what I wanted. That's what my intention was. So that's why it's important for the writer. For the listener, it's important because it's a mini pitch. We get, uh, an, we get an idea right away of the kind of movie or TV show you're going for and what's special about it, what's special in the, uh, what's a special idea. Not what's special thematically, although that should bubble through, but, you know, what's that cool idea that we haven't thought about before or we want to explore more. And that's what happens in a, in a log line. So that's why it's important. What is the key, do you think, to creating, uh, like if you're a little bit lost, are there some ways that you can create your log line or, or figure it out? Because a lot of people will be will write screenplays and they're in the middle of the story. And what you know, one of the common things that you'll do is go up and be like, what, what is your story about? You know, and, and for whatever, I mean, people would do that to me and I'd, I'd just be like, well... You have half an hour, you know, <laughs> you sit down and explain. And I never, it wasn't until I started focusing on that idea of creating a, an idea, a log line that I, you know, I could be like, oh, well, I really need to know how to say this quickly. 
And It's About is actually a good way in to find your love life. Uh, oh. What's your story about? It's about a person who experiences this thing, so they have to do so-and-so. Or it's about a person who wants to do so something in a particular way. Or it's about this group of people uh, who, in their attempt to do such-and-such, such, end up in conflict. So, yes, just starting with it's about is a, is a great way in. But, yes, you're, the answer to that question is usually a sentence. It's mm. not to have a half an hour. Now, can you walk through a little bit of how to deal with act structure and just structure in general for how to lay out their story? Yeah, I, you know, I have a, a second edition of the Coffee Break Screenwriter. <laughs> be, no, 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 this isn't a big ad, but I just want to tell you what's... All right, what, we'll buy the book. We'll no, 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 no. There's something, there's something new that's going to be in there that um, that I'm using in, in classes now that's not in the first one. And I can tell it to you right now. You don't have to buy the second edition at all, but I want to tell you... Um, it's, uh, it's just the idea that for screenplay structure, all those books, everything we've been talking about, all the analysis really comes down to, in my opinion, four things, trauma, training, trials, and triumphs. And the idea is that in act one, if you will, or the beginning of, uh, of your pilot, um, trauma is that thing that sort of traumatizes a character into a new experience. And it can be positive, it can be negative or it can be positive. Falling in love is a trauma. Then the training is kind of an on-the-job kind of training where you're sort of learning about your new experience or your new environment by doing, and that could be seen as you know the first half of the second act or um, the first part of the middle for your pilot. Then we've got trials, which is a, a real pushback, and testing. Really? You think you know what you're doing? Oh, yeah, well, here's this big conflict that's going to happen. Deal with that. And then we've got... Um, triumph, and which doesn't have to be happy ever after. It's just that solving of the problem that we talked about, some kind of closure. Um, and in a pilot, that tends to be sort of a, a mini solving of the problem with a greater question asked. So trauma training, trials, and triumphs, you asked my take on structure. That's pretty much what it is. It's uh, <laughs> four TR words that I can say really quickly, and that sound kind of cool. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. You can put it on a shirt. There you go. <laughs> so yeah. it kind of reminds me of the hero's journey a little bit. It's yeah, and I think it's sort of that idea of what's everybody saying. You know, we're we're all trying to say it in different ways. Well, I think you're really supposed <laughs> to have those four things. There you go. Okay, moving on. One of the things that I struggle with a lot is not so much the second act, but the what you have in your book is the second second act. Mm -hmm. That's that and act to be that middle yeah. part two. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now that it seems like a lot of kind of screenplays, that's where they die in. Well, that's where that trials part comes in. And it is that pushback. And um, that pushback can be from an antagonist where somebody goes, you know what? I see you learning on the job and I don't like it. I don't want you to accomplish your goal. I'm going to do something really big. So in Act 2B, you might be thinking, okay, wait a minute. Somebody is really going to try and stop them in a major way. Or sometimes it's a character's flaw that's the pushback. Um, you know, the character was doing really well and even, even sort of, you know, dealing with their flaw or overcoming it, but something about their nature just screwed it up. Their flaw was triggered, and that's the pushback. Um, sometimes it's an event that happens. We talk about that midpoint event that mm -hmm. happens right before that section that focuses the main character and forces them now to really accomplish one mission instead of 
several little moments of fun and games. And that can make Act 2 be, feel, feel more important as well. And if you look at that as pushback, it's, it's the idea that that, that person now has this mission, and that's going to be really hard. They thought they were learning on the job. They thought they got it. Okay, now they have to do this. So those would be some ways I would be thinking about to heighten Act 2B and make it interesting and different so that the reader doesn't go, oh, here we are, more of this. <laughs> one of the things that I think a lot of writers get lost in, um, and one of the things that you guys do, a, I think, a really good job of on, on the podcast is talk, is, is analyzing what people are writing, how they've put it together, and how if somebody's going over the top in terms of exp- explaining what the details are in the room, every painting on the wall and everything like that. What what do you, in terms of rewriting so that people are actually making progress, what is your advice for them? I'm a big believer of essence statements. Mm-hmm. So instead of, you said, you said, you know, all that stuff in the wall and, you know, the set decorating. So instead of set decorating your environment, um, is there a comparison you have? Is there a way of, of, describing it in one sentence that is the personality of the room, the essence of the room. So I think an example that I use is, you know, um, uh, Bill's office screams CEO. So if a, if a room is, if, if an office is screaming CEO, you know that we've got a big desk and uh, a huge chair and an imposing environment and, you know, uh, diplomas all over the wall, something like that. The set decorator can do their job. You don't have to say they're all those things. The personality is just their screaming CEO. So I'm looking for those personality descriptions for environment, for your rewrite, um, an essence of character instead of just physicalizing them. Those kind of things help paint the picture and make your writing better. One of the things I love about doing the podcast is I get to do a lot of research. So, you know, um, I've, I've been watching some of your presentations that are on YouTube and I really loved what you what you said about you don't want to you want to make sure characters aren't just saying what they're thinking, you know, and that's a problem that people get into. It actually made me it reminded me of that. I don't know if you ever saw that SNL sketch with uh, Joe Montana where he just walks in and he's a guy that can only say what he thinks. <laughs> you know, Leslie, I could talk to you for days. Gee, I'd like the jumper bones. <laughs> Same here. You know, I haven't even noticed the time. Gee, I wish he'd jump my bones. Whoa. I didn't realize how late it was. You know, you're welcome to spend the night here, in the living room. If she says yes, I'm home free. Well, gee, you know, I I really shouldn't. I don't want to seem too trampy. Well, suit yourself. Okay, I will. (laughs) Oh, great. That's my roommate, Stu. Damn it. What a time for him to show up. Terrific. I'd love to meet him. Oh, no. He's going to ruin everything. I think you really like Stu. He's absolutely the most sincere, genuine, straightforward person you'll ever want to meet. A real honest guy. Mm. What a jerk he is. He sounds really nice. God, he sounds boring. Oh, here he is. Hey, Stu, come on in. Oh, uh, I hope I'm not disturbing you. I hope I'm not disturbing them. (laughs) No, not at all. God, he's going to scare her away. Uh, Stu, this is Leslie. Leslie Stu. Hi, I'm very glad to meet you. 
I'm very glad to meet her. Uh, well, it's nice to meet you. God, this guy's a stiff. Uh, Leslie was going to sleep in the living room. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Unless that's a problem for you, in which case she could sleep in my room and I could sleep on the floor. Come on, you idiot. Help me out. You know, maybe it would be better if I stayed in Dan's room because we don't want to inconvenience you. Hey, it's fine with me if you stay in the living room. It won't bother me at all. It's fine with me if she stays in the living room. It doesn't bother me at all. Well, thanks a lot, Stu. Yeah, thanks a lot, jerk. You know, you are so sweet. Boy, is this guy lame. Well, listen, Stu, I think Leslie and I are going to stay up a while and talk, so I guess we'll uh, see you tomorrow. Great. See you tomorrow. Great. I'll see them tomorrow. so as not to disturb you, okay? Oh, you won't disturb me. I'll be in my room masturbating. They won't disturb me. I'll be masturbating. Good night. It just follows him. I'll send you a link to it, but it's like exactly kind of the thing that people, you know, if you're reading a screenplay, it's like, you know, I'm angry at you for this. Well, I think because you did this, because you know what I mean? So yeah. can you uh, can you talk a little bit about dialogue and the way people, you know, use dialogue that's not just like on the nose and, and the different kinds of dialogue, I guess? You're awesome. You know exactly what you're talking about. The, the, the fact that a lot of people don't understand that on the nose means saying what you absolutely feel. It's so weird for a, for a grown up to say exactly what they feel like we've learned how to lie that's that's what being a grown up is about we've learned to say wow it's great to see you instead of oh god i can't believe it's you again um <laughs> because we're in civilized society and uh and you know that's why with comedy often the comedy comes out of somebody who's simply unfiltered who's just telling the truth so if you look at uh, one example i give in, in classes um, I show a scene from Silver Linings Playbook. And, you know, what makes those characters so incredibly quirky and funny is the fact that they're in a romantic comedy and they're saying things like, you know, they're, they're, they're just speaking the truth to each other. And it's just so weird and unfiltered and wrong that it's hilarious. I hope you're okay with Veronica's sister coming over. Are you okay with that? Cool. Veronica's sister. Tiffany. Tiffany and Tommy? Yeah, I'm just Tiffany. What happened to Tommy? He died. Tommy died? Cops die. How'd he die? Please, don't bring it up. No, how did he die? I just said... How did who die? Hey, Tiffany. This is Pat. Pat. Sister-in-law Tiffany. You look nice. Thank you. I'm not flirting with you. I didn't think you were. I just see that you made an effort, and I'm going to be better with my wife. I'm working on that. I want to acknowledge her beauty. I never used to do that. I'm going to do that now because we're going to be better than ever, Nikki. Just practicing. How'd Tommy die? What about your job? I just got fired, actually. Oh, really? How? I mean, I'm sorry. How, how'd that happen? Does it really matter? Mm-hmm. Or it's, it's, I should say, it's a, a completely new take on a, on a traditional rom-com. Right. So, yeah, I think that you have to be careful that if you're writing dialogue and it's not intended to be funny, um, 
and somebody is just saying what's on their mind, it's going to seem really cheesy. It's going to seem like, you know, oh, I feel this mixture of attraction and revulsion right now. It's like, really? Are, are, are you a human being? Don't you know how people really talk? Which is the lie, you know? Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, I'm feeling this mixture of attraction and revulsion, they might just say, hello. And, <laughs> and the, the action underneath would show the subtext. You know, they might do something to express how they really feel but the line itself is as simple as hello. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the, th- you know, as a screenwriter, you're always looking for things um, to make your audience curious, to make them want to know more and to really pull them through the story. And, I, you know, Spielberg is great at doing that. You always want to know what's going to come next. And when you when you have characters who aren't giving up everything and that you're, you know, maybe at some point you're going to figure out what is actually going through their brain. But I mean, it's it's a really important thing I think to make people wonder. I wonder what that person actually is is thinking, you know, versus what they they say. You know, it's a great scene to go back to an old classic Spielberg scene that I just think shows that um, I don't know. There's there's more subtext and subtlety in certain Spielberg movies than than people give those movies credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the mashed potato scene in in oh yeah you know i yeah. love the mashed potato scene because there you are at a family dinner and this guy becomes obsessed with building a mountain out of his mashed potatoes right in front of his family and they're looking at him like he's the craziest guy in the world when he looks up one of the kids is crying the, the mom's mouth is agape and all he's been doing is showing what's in his head by playing with his mashed potatoes Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a great scene. It's just it's it just sort of expresses it all without having to completely talk about it. Now it does trigger him to finally say, "Okay, this is what's going on with Daddy," but but the story is really told before he actually says that. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the same scene where he's like, "You kids might have noticed that Dad's acting right, a little." Exactly. <laughs> Well, I guess you've noticed something that's a little strange with Dad. It's okay, though. Still Dad. I can't describe it, what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking. This means something. It's important. But if he started the scene with that, hey, you kids might have noticed, and blah, 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 it would feel artificial, it would feel on the nose. We needed the expression of what was in his brain through activity first, and that triggers him to finally have to admit, okay, this is what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think something that I did back in my early screenwriting life is I would try to make things sound natural and how people, you know, you're like, okay, I want it to be real. So I'm going to, I'm going to write like people actually talk. But at the same time, it's like, you, you can't do everything in your, your scripts. It has to be deliberate. You know, it has to be moving you towards something. So I would just sit there and write, you know, two people talking to each other and then this would happen and that would happen. In my mind, I was like, oh, I'm just setting up this world, but it wasn't, there was no point to it. Right. And, and how people really talk 
I'm not saying that people in, in movies shouldn't talk the way people really talk, really talk. There needs to be an authenticity to the voice. But if we included every um and stutter and, you know, and all those things that we do, it would be really difficult to watch, <laughs> yeah. which is why we edit a lot from the tops and bottoms of, of scenes, because often it takes us so long to get to the point where with scene work on screen, we're able to get to the point much quicker and we mm-hmm. can lop off all that hemming and hawing that gets us there. Now, what, one of the, another thing in your book that's really helped me a lot is the concept of goal, action, and conflict mm-hmm. as you go through your scene. Can you talk a, a little bit about that and the importance of you know, breaking things down into those the idea of goal, action, and, and the conflict that it calls? It's, it's one of the ways I get people to outline and just figure out their central beats so they can figure out what their story is. I ask, okay, well, you take all those scenes that you think are this part of the story and ask yourself, what's the goal? What does a character want to do? What's the activity? What do they actually do? Not what do they think or feel or plan? And then what's the complication? What gets in their way? And if you can do that big picture, you can start to find your major beats. But you can also do that in your scenes in terms of what does your character want from the scene uh, and what and how do they intend to get it? So, yeah, it can be done in the macro, it can be done in the micro, but it always sort of keeps you on story. Um, so, yeah, it's a, something I would just recommend as far as outlining and for rewriting. When you mentioned the idea that it's a macro and a micro way of doing things, what I ended up, I was going through and I was putting together the different, you know, in, in the book, it breaks it up into first act, second act, second act B and third act. And so what I, I ended up doing, though, was I found that even in a moment by moment level, I was looking at it, you know, so I would have like five or six different moments in the first act alone where I was asking myself, OK, here's this character. What is their goal? What do they want? What is the action that they're taking to get that goal? And then what conflict is that causing? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And it, it caused the, the scenes to be so much more dynamic and you, you understood the characters much more. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm so glad that worked for you. Although I don't know if I want to go around going, it's the GAC system. I'm throwing up a little bit. I got it. I'm already making shirts. I, I <laughs> Can you talk just for just a second about once somebody has a final screenplay, once you've worked with them, once you've gotten it all like ready, what is kind of the next phase after that? Ah, so I, I think, are you talking about sort of like how would you push it toward a sale? It's yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess uh, the idea is that a lot of people that listen to this and, you know, there's a couple of things I wanted to go into but that I won't just in terms of like people who are not in Los Angeles who want to write and people who are trying to sell screenplays. Um, are you finding that people that you're working with are trying to build a career as screenwriters, like full-time screenwriters, or is it something that's kind of like a part-time thing? And is is it a viable option for people? I mean, what, what can they do once they have a screenplay that you sign off on, that you say, okay, this is really good? Well, let's talk about the, the people who don't live in L.A. first. Okay. Um, there's all kinds of different feelings about competitions, but my feeling is why not? Um, when you submit to competitions, competitions know, first of all, that you might not be an L.A. person, which actually is to your advantage because they're looking for diverse writers, um, and that means diversity of experience and place as well. Um, so, so that gives you an advantage. 
Another thing is it's a writing competition, not a selling competition. So competitions are looking at your craft and, and not necessarily, you know, whether or not they want to take this on and thinking about, oh, but there's a competing project. So both of those things can work in your favor. And once you do win a competition like that, it's become a bit of a vetting situation for agents and managers who may not have their own personal reader, reader pool and use competitions to as a reader pool in a way to, to help them uh, find undiscovered material so and undiscovered writers. So I do think that it is worth submitting to competitions, you know, high-level competitions, not necessarily, you know, your friend's cousin's competition who's just like, <laughs> yeah, pay me 50 bucks. And, you know, you want to make sure that there's some kind of pot of gold at the end of that rainbow for sure. So I would do that. Are there um, any uh, competitions that come to mind? Well, the Nickel Fellowship is definitely the most prestigious. That's through the Academy. Austin, uh, Austin Film Festival Screenwriting Competition is, is also prestigious. Um, the kind of the ones that are tip of the tongue for people, those have been around the, the longest, and that usually means that they have the most success behind them. Um, Blue Cat. Um, Screencraft is doing a good job as a new screenwriting competition because they are genre-oriented. And that means that it doesn't have to just be a drama that wins because they have their own comedy or horror category just for those films. So um, so I think that's a good one. There's also a lot more open for TV now for competitions and short films, too. A lot of short film competitions are out there that will give you money to make your film, which is awesome. Because making your stuff is also a great way to get people's attention if you're from outside of L.A. and you have a good camera and a really tight, smart script, and I'd be thinking about, you know, really short-form content, um, and you feel like you could make it without mortgaging your house and put it on YouTube, and it's something that could get eyes on it, that's another way to go. People are looking for talent online. Um, another way to go if you're... You know, the, the, the pitch fests, um, a lot of cynicism around them, that, and I, and I can understand because there's this sense that they can be a little bit of a circus. But mm -hmm. once you are one on one with somebody, that's your opportunity. It can be a pretty intima intimate moment, and it's an opportunity for FaceTime with industry that you might not have otherwise. I think it's replaced the query letter as far as being sort of a cold look at your work. So all those things can be good for people who don't live here. For people who do live here, um, they're doing the same thing, but also they're looking for who do they know who, knew, who knows somebody, and they're trying to mine their contacts. And in that case, what they're usually doing is saying, hey, uh, person who knows my friend, um, not <laughs> can you read my screenplay, but could I take you out for coffee and can I pick your brain a little bit? And if you make that relationship, by the end of coffee, they might say, yeah, sure, send me a script. But you don't want to start with a favor. You want to start with mining relationships. And that's what people in L.A. do and uh, why the caricature of that is known as, uh, you know, <laughs> As, as us being very schmoozy. <laughs> but really, you know, it's, it's, it's how an L.A. person moves up is they have to make their relationships. And a lot of people in the industry live out here and they got to make friends, you know. 
And mm-hmm. I think making friends is actually not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that's that's my advice for moving things forward, just a, a little bit of it. Because um, the people who come on my show, they always have interesting stories about how they got in. And inevitably, it's always some kind of random moment. But the only thing that ties them together is that their work was ready. Uh, when they got that opportunity, they had a great kick-ass script, which is why I spend, tend to stay on the content side, trying to get people to write a kick-ass script. Do people need to have uh, a body of work? I mean, should they have like... Some people say three screenplays or four screenplays that they can show. I don't know if there's a magic number, but I do know that the first thing somebody says after they've read something is, what else have you got? So Mm -hmm. you want to make sure that you're at least knee-deep in something else before you, you know, paper your script all over town. Because if the answer is, well, I don't know, well, (laughs) you know, at least be like, yeah, I certainly do got something else. And as soon as I'm done polishing it up, I'll give it to you and <laughs> lock yourself in a room and finish the, the effort. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I know you got to go. So what, uh, how can, just so people can get in touch with you, I assume most people have already heard of on the page, but um, what, what is, uh, what's your info? I don't know. I don't know if most people put them on the page. That would be cool if they have, but if you so. haven't, just so you know, yeah, there is a podcast called On the Page. It's on, on iTunes. But also, I think a catch-all for my classes, the podcast, my book. Um, also, I have some recorded classes for people who live out of town. It's Just go to onthepage.tv. That's my website. It's got it all there, and uh, and and I'd love to work with you someday. I want to thank Jason so much for doing such a great job on this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 294. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 